Hi, this is Walt. If you're a person who, whatever your age, has begun to think seriously about the goals you want to pursue in retirement, the episode you're about to hear may make you want to upgrade your bucket list. You'll find out why in the first five minutes. Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. This episode is sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal and Connecticut Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored. Meet Barbara Beachy, a remarkable person with an important story to tell us about the creation of an African-American middle class in 19th century Hartford, long before many people thought such a group existed. Her book, Hopes and Expectations, The Origins of the Black Middle Class in Hartford, is a wonderfully readable, thoroughly documented account of how two generations of the Primus family created and then lived out the hopes and expectations of a strong black middle class in a white society deeply infused with racist attitudes about blacks and their abilities. It's a story full of surprises and insights, and as you're about to hear, Barbara herself is an equally surprising and insightful person in her own right. I'm Walt Woodward, and I'm here today at the Seabury Community in Bloomfield with Dr. Barbara Beeching, the author of a new book about the rise and, to some extent, fall of an African-American middle class in Hartford during the 1800s. It's titled, Hopes and Expectations, The Origins of the Black Middle Class in Hartford, and it was published by SUNY Press. Barbara, welcome to Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Your first book as a historian is really extraordinary. I was so excited to read this book. But so was your path to becoming a historian. So before we talk about the book, maybe you could tell us a bit about how you became a historian. I became a historian almost accidentally. When I was young, I started on a master's degree at Tulane. Later, when I was approaching retirement, I thought to myself, maybe I go ahead and get that master's now. So Trinity College was handy, and I went over there, and I en- enrolled in American Studies. Now, and when you got your master's, may I ask, what age were you? Was this in... I was in my 60s. You know, a lot of people who decided to get a master's degree at 60s would stop there when they got the degree and say, I'm really proud of myself. But you kept going. Well, no, I said to myself exactly that. Boy, now I did that. that. That's really good. My husband was an academic himself. And one day he was reading the paper and he said, here's a story about an old lady in Rhode Island, I believe it was. And she just got her Ph.D. at the age of 82. So I said, and? And he said, that's what you're going to do. He did. So, of course, I said, no, I'm not. I could never do all that stuff. I know what it involves. 
And the next thing I knew, I was over at UConn. How old were you when you started your PhD studies? I think I was 70. And you got your degree? 82. (laughs) That is just so impressive. How long after you got your PhD was it till this wonderful book came out? It was seven years. So if I'm doing my math correctly... Hopes and Expectations was published when you were 89 years old? 88, I think. When you... <laughs> Let's don't overstate this. Okay, absolutely. I did not mean to put years on you. That's so... No, I'll oh, take them all. Oh, my on. bad. This would be an impressive accomplishment at any age. What prompted you to take on the origins of Hartford's black middle class as a topic of research? When I was at Trinity... I was taking a course in the Gilded Age and looking for a topic for a paper. I didn't want to talk about all the tycoons because I thought they'd been done to death. So um, David White, who was one of the first and best local historians of the black community, said to me, you need to read the Primus Papers. And what are, just give us an overview, what are the Primus Papers? Primus Papers... When you, they bring them out, it's three cardboard boxes with papers in them. Right. And among those papers are all kinds of things, mementos and greeting cards and postcards and ads cut out of the paper. But the main thing is these 200 letters that were written by three different young people in three different places, but they were all connected to the Primus family. And the Primus family was an African-American family in Hartford in, in the Hartford, 19th century. Yes, yes. So you read these letters and said, Bye, that- I said, this is, a, this is great stuff. And I think the real strength of this book is that you embed these wonderful stories of people in really rich and thorough historical mm. detail about the time period in which they lived, and the situation for people aspiring to be members of the black middle class. You know, the footnotes alone are worth the trip, and there are not many books I would say that about. (laughs) So much of your story focuses around two generations of the Primus family, right? I mean, you cover more. You have Holdridge and Mahidabel Esther Jacobs Primus, and they're the first generation. Holdridge comes to Hartford in the year 1828. Why did he come to Hartford, and what was the place he came to? He was part of the first internal migration, they call it. He was born in 1815. He lived with his family and another related family and some other assorted people on the farm of his grandfather, Gad Asher. Gad Asher lived in Branford. So Holdridge grew up as a young boy in Branford. His father had been a sailor. Things got very tight and hard, especially for black sailors at that time, so he evidently gave that up, and he and his wife moved to the farm. There were enough men to work that farm without the kids, so Holdridge and his cousin, we don't know whether they went together or separately, went to Hartford, and there was an aunt there, and I am pretty sure she was the one who helped steer Holdridge to the Ellsworth family, which is a pretty distinguished family in Connecticut. What does he do for them? That was never made clear, but I imagine anything that needed to be done around the house, and he he may have become a favorite because it was clear that this was a young man who was brought up to work hard and pay attention, and even to seek the favor of whites 
This idea of having association with prominent or helpful whites became central to Holdridge's strategy for first negotiating the complexities of being black in a white society, but also the practice that he followed, the ideology of racial uplift. Tell us about that. What was racial uplift? Well, the, the way that a black family achieved status within the black community and also with whites was to behave in a way that was expected by the whites, but among themselves to value education, religion, certainly, and to dress and comport themselves, it seems to me, in a way that is acceptable in the white world. And the purpose was not so much to raise themselves socially as to demonstrate to white people that they were indeed equal. They were capable of doing the same things, leading the same sorts of lives that white people did. And the logic behind this was white people think, you know, that we're somehow inferior to them. But by demonstrating that we have the capacity, that we can educate ourselves, that we can present ourselves Mm -hmm. in a refined manner, they'll see. And then when they see, their prejudices will drop away and we will be included as equals in society. Am I getting that? That's exactly right. Is there a big African-American community in Hartford at that time? No, no. 300 or so. 300 or so. Very small. Now, the Primuses, uh, Holdridge and Mehitabel, as they raised their family, they really took to heart this idea of racial equality and tried to live with these middle-class values of the mid-19th century. The point that you make fairly early on in the book, and I, I think it's uh, something that's really important for people to remember, is that Though many of the African Americans in Connecticut were essentially recently emancipated, formerly enslaved people, they had been servants or slaves in New England households for generations. And that as part of being in those households, they had also kind of imbibed the values of New England culture. So that as they thought about adopting these middle-class values, they were very much in sync with the values and attitudes of the middle-class or upper-class white people that they served. Is that correct? I think so. And I think it wasn't even that conscious with them. I think they had imbued those standards just by their association with whites on whatever basis. And they figured this is the way you live. They had no memory of Africa. There, there may have been some practices and some speech um, details that, that had come down to them. But there wasn't anything I could discover that was identifiable as African. So they were African Americans, but they were New Englanders too, or the Connecticuts. They, they were, were black Yankees, is one term that's sure. used for them. Now, yeah. now, Primus and his family, and many other people in Hartford, followed this path of racial uplift. But that wasn't the only approach to gaining social justice and equality among blacks in Hartford at the time, right? What a what other paths were people taking? Who were the people, you know, who who were pushing in other directions? Um, I think Jose Easton is the the person I would think of as the sort of emblem of the other, the resistance. He was an angry man, 
and he had reason to be angry. His father in Massachusetts had had founded a school for blacks to teach them to do foundry work and lost his money, lost the school, lost everything because of race prejudice. And Jose Easton had become a preacher himself, a minister. But he could not forget or forgive the way his father's efforts had been treated. And he went around saying things like, you people are just crazy if you think this is going to get you anywhere with whites. You, you can't ingratiate yourself into the white world. You have to demand your rights. So he became one of these really outspoken he advocates. He was. And he, he became nationally known. I mean, he wasn't just local. He but he didn't stay in Hartford that That's long, right. Did he, he did not stay. There were some people who, for a brief time, were attracted to the American colonization movement. What was that approach? Oh, that was a mostly white movement. And uh, Lydia Huntley Sigourney in the... <laughs> the sweet singer of Hartford, right? <laughs> the dear lady who wrote the poems uh, was uh, very active in that. Their idea was, yes, we must end slavery and we must send all the blacks back to Africa. And so they decided that the way to do this was to persuade the free black to go on back to Africa, not understanding that they would be strangers in Africa. And there was, I think there were some few people at first who thought this might be a good idea. And indeed, there were several that we know of in Hartford who did go back. You know, I had heard somewhere that Augustus Washington, the photographer, was for a time very much a champion of this movie. He went. That, he went himself, and he wrote back a letter to the, I think it was to a New York paper, but he was mentioning a couple of people in Hartford by name, and one was Holdridge Primus, could not do any worse by coming over here. So he's trying to attract people over. Now, he was. Now, the idea wasn't that the African Americans would go back to Africa and repatriate to a land they'd never been to or, or knew anything about. But it was also that as Christians, they would go and be missionaries. They'd bring New England culture to Africa, so Liberia would be a little Connecticut, right? That's right. And and what, what Washington wrote back was that he expected or possibly had made himself a very important man, more important, more influential than the blacks who had always been in Africa. And there was a little tinge of that, that you will come over here and be a leader. And Whereas at home, you're not even able to vote. And he specifically said Holdridge Primus would be one of the people who would benefit from doing this. And that kind of suggests he, that Holdridge Primus had become a big man in the African-American community in Hartford, right? He was. He, he became the treasurer of the black church, the first black church. He was a member of the Masons, and he was known as somebody people went to when they had problems that they wanted to solve. Not necessarily that, that he was going to solve them, but he would help them through their troubles and make suggestions. Was that because he had such good network relationships with the white community, or was it, do you think, because he just, you know, he was a natural I, fixer? It's it's hard to say. I do think his connections had something to do with it, if it was a, a financial business or something to do with finding work. But I think he was also genuinely interested in the community and keeping it together and making it constantly improve. And when I talk about a group 
of people in Hartford that belonged to this section that eventually formed what I'm calling a black middle class. They weren't everybody, but they were a surprisingly large number. I, I picked out 40 names that I thought were obviously uh, civic leaders of some kind. They owned their homes. They had church uh, recommendations. And count them and their whole families. It was more than half the black population. I was going to ask you, how do you define middle class? And one of the things, you just just gave two, I think, traits, church membership and homeownership. The black middle class isn't exactly the same as the white middle class, is it? No, it's not. But it, it uses the many of the standards, the religion, education, family, hard work, it's, dependability, and respectability. Like so the, the same the traits general. that are important in the Second Great Awakening among whites are also important That's to the right. black community. Oh, and, Moral, and it, morality, temperance. The black middle class, the chief requirement that I saw that was different from among whites was this care for community, this um, being willing to work with the church or with the temperance people or whoever it might be to bring people together. So it's that it's that sense of collaboration that we're all in this together and we've got to stay together. And that in a lot of ways helped these disparate threads of activism, the, the racial uplift and the abolitionist and the colonization movement, they still held together hmm. in the, around yes. these middle-class values. That's true. And central to that, I think, from reading your book, was the church, right? The Congregational Church, at least certainly before the Civil War. I think you hear more from me about the the Congregational Church because that was where the primuses were. Around 1819, a group of blacks went to the, the pastor of the First Congregational Church and said that they were tired of being relegated to the corners or the upper pews or wherever the blacks were segregated in that church. No. Nobody could see them, and they couldn't see, yeah. or they were stuck in the in the you know in the loft. That that was um, Jeremiah's description of the White Baptist Got Church, it. and so I don't know what the seating was like in the Congregational Church, but, but it was. But the same. generally, was you the, were seated as a second-class non-citizen, right? And yeah, and and we just assumed you weren't there. <laughs> the response was the pastor would give them a separate room to meet in. In a way, this was one thing they wanted, a place where they could meet alone because uh, there was no such place at that time. They also wanted to be equal, which they didn't get. What they and, were getting was separate, but... But unequal. Yeah. And what the whites got was, well, we don't have the blacks in church anymore. They met in this separate room at the church for a while, and then it seemed to me as fast as they could, they found a room someplace else. And before long, they raised money, some from whites, to build their own African meeting house, and that was for all the blacks. And that became the Talcott Street Congregational through, Church. Through the way that many congregational churches behave, they worship for a while together, and then they get to talking about things, and they do disagree. Congregationalists to- disagreeing, you must be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, these things happen. Yeah. <laughs> 
So they took a vote, which was very democratic. And the, the side that won was the congregational people, and the others moved out, and they formed the AME Zion Church. The pastors of the first and second white congregational churches come to the meeting at which they were confirmed as, a, as they were the fifth congregational church in Hartford. It would be easy when you talk about the formation of a black middle class and home ownership and establishing churches to think that they're moving around in a society that has maybe a grudging acceptance, but an acceptance of African-Americans. But in fact, Hartford is a very racist community. So, so these middle class accomplishments are happening in a very racist environment, right? Which is why it was so important for community to hang together at that time. Yes, they made friends or they found patrons among the white elites, but the working class whites were insulting on the street. And there was, a, in 1835, there was what was called a, a race riot. It was not blacks rebelling. It was whites attacking. It's a terrible event. It was ugly. It's just a street attack. It's just, you know, beat the guy up. It's they waited of- outside the church where the meeting was being held. And there seems to be no dispute that that was about the effort at uplift, the urge to attain the privileges of citizenship. Sure. And there are also some things going on in the state and in the country that are fueling these fires. Prudence Crandall is starting her school in this period. The Amistad captives Mm -hmm. are in Hartford. There are a lot of local issues that feed the racist impulses among people in Hartford. A number of national black leaders had come to Hartford to talk about the abolition movement. In 1835, it was just getting going. They they had a big campaign of sending out leaflets and broadsides and just trying to really overwhelm the opposition. Sure. Think of another one, James Mars and Nancy Jackson, right, who sues for her freedom and wins. For a lot of whites, this active effort to include blacks in society is just more than they can seem to handle. So... In the 1840s and 50s, there's this increased activism among blacks in Hartford. But Holdridge Primus, the patriarch of this family, or the patriarch of the Hartford clan, he stays off to the side, doesn't he? And in fact, when things get going, he's not even in Hartford. What did he do? (laughs) He accepted an offer he couldn't refuse. What happened was there was the, the finding of gold in California, and this is the last place you'd think Holdridge Primus would care to go, but the son of the man who owned the grocery store where he was working, by that time he was working for a grocery store on Main Street where he was a porter, which is like a clerk. I don't know if it's that store, but one of the images you have in your book is of Holdridge Primus out in front of a store, and he's, you know... Yeah, he's standing right out at the curb. And he's just, he's got great posture and he's (laughs) well-dressed. He's got his apron on. You really see the embodiment of this racial uplift ideology in his deportment. Yeah, well, that's a a funny thing that I used. Photographs came in handy as support for this middle-class name that I'm giving people. So the son of the grocery store he's working in. Wanted to go. They were forming these groups all over the the state to go out there. There were just dozens of them. And 
the, his father said, the only way you're going to go is if Holdridge Primus goes along to keep track of you. And Holdridge went. And he said he would. And, the, and he went, and it was awful. And he, had to, uh, he wound up on his own and found work with the Adams Express Company and came back five years later on the train with Mr. Adams. So he was Holdridge Primus on the West Coast as much as he was at sure. home. And, but, so um, he came back with yeah. an elite white kind of a patron, right? Yeah. yeah, who had given him a gold medal and some kind of a letter of commendation for all the good hard work he had done out there. So he ingratiated himself with powerful white people. Now... Some people today would say that was that's kind of Uncle Tomish, right? Is that that? Well, that's not the way it reads when you're going through his life story. This was a choice he made. He he was not going to be a crusader. He was going to take care of his family and try to have a decent life as secure as he could make it. And he succeeded. This trip to California ended up. He came back with money, didn't he? Possibly with money. Somehow, the next day after he got back, that mortgage was paid in full. I had the impression that it was the store owner and possibly some other people that uh, he didn't come with the money in his hand to pay off the oh, rest of the mortgage. That's so interesting. So maybe a welcome back thing or, or maybe... Uh, I think it was part of the bargain. Payment for services. We, if you go with my son, we'll pay off your house You when see, because you he, he purchased that house the day before he left. His family moved in and they lived there while he was gone. And, but then only when he came back was it paid off. But by going to California, he became a homeowner in entirety. No mortgage, no, not beholden to anybody. That was his That's house. Right. I have the sense from your book that homeownership is the anchor of middle-class status in the black community. It's, it's a very important, it's, you, can, <laughs> you can be recognized as a, as a local leader without owning your home, but you need something like that. Your book seems to indicate that just before the Civil War, right, about 1860, that's kind of the peak of, if not opportunities for blacks in Hartford, it's certainly the peaks, peak of, of their hopes. Hope. Yeah, a Absolutely. Yes, there were uh, several things like the, the number of homeowners peaked at that, in that year. Literacy. Literacy was measured at 98% among, among the blacks, which is just astonishing. This is among the middle-class blacks yeah. or among all blacks all in blacks. Harvard? Yeah. That's very impressive. So obviously people are getting education. Where are they being educated? There are black schools by that time. And you went to school until you were 15, it's sort of surprising what all they learned in those years. I mean, that wouldn't now even get you through high school. Sure. In Rebecca's letters, you hear the voice of the school teacher. It's very proper and very correct and mostly restrained. But in, in Nelson's letters, he's much more free-flying. And he quotes poetry that I read in high school you know, the English masters. <laughs> well, so you've begun to talk about, and it's natural because their coming of age is 1860 approaches, right? You know, the Civil War comes. Oh, yes, and, they are grown. And Holdridge and Mahitabel have these 
two children who now are like the second generation. And both of them, in their own way, continue to follow this path of racial uplift with, with variations. And, and with the hopes. There were four in all, four Primus children, and all of them grew up in years when things were getting better. And these weren't extraordinary steps ahead, but for blacks who were paying attention to how things are going, this was really a good period. I thought that this is probably why you titled your book the way you did, because with Nelson and Rebecca and Addie Brown, who was Rebecca's friend, we'll talk about her in a minute, they have more than hopes. It seems like they have expectations that okay. they can make their life something and that they are going to make the world better. The story, the story just comes alive. Well, it's already alive, but it comes alive in a different way when you tell the story of Nelson and Rebecca and Addie. You do it through their letters, and they've left you such a rich mm. treasure trove that we see them in a different way. You can infer a lot about Holdridge and Mahidabelf, but with Nelson and Rebecca and Addie, you get many things in their own words. Next, we'll hear about the lives of Nelson and Rebecca Primus and her friend Addie Brown and the changing fortunes of Hartford's black middle class after the Civil War. But first, I want to tell you about a brand new initiative by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Humanities. It's called Today in Connecticut History. Every day of the year at todayinctshistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. Todayinctshistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history, and it's worth knowing, and I hope you'll visit todayinctshistory.com soon. Todayinctshistory.com, because big things happened in this state on this date. You can infer a lot about Holdridge and Mahidabel, but with Nelson and Rebecca and Addie, you get many things in their own words. Let's take them one at a time. Nelson, Holdridge's son. The only son. The firstborn son and spoiled son, right? (laughs) In a way, yeah. And he's got some talent. He left. He finished school at 15, obviously. By the time he was 16, he was apprenticed to a carriage maker, which might seem odd for a man who became an artist. But what he was doing with the carriage maker was designing and painting the furbaloos and the gewgaws that went on the sides of the carriages because these were made for upper-class people. And the man who owned the carriage company himself was going to be an artist and had some training. But when his father died, he had no choice but to take over the carriage factory. And so he looked at Nelson Primus and said, here's a young man with talent, right? He said, yeah, this guy, this kid needs lessons. Nelson did have some drawing lessons with a woman in Hartford, and the carriage maker also worked with him, and he made some paintings and had some success. And he won prizes at the state fair, and I think this fed his idea 
that there are people who make their living through art. I'm going to do that because people are buying my paintings. And he was a young man, and he he married in 1864, I think, and almost immediately had a child. But he had made up his mind to go to Boston because it was a bigger city, and there was a much greater opportunity for him to sell his paintings there. So he took his little family and and went to Boston, and that's where he wrote his letters. His ambition and his sense of ability just shines through those letters. He, he does expect he's going to make it sometime, and he persists in that for a long, long while, right? For his whole life, as a matter of fact. He, he painted all his life. He had an awful time because nobody knew him in Boston. It was a much bigger city. But his you're right, his letters are just full of optimism. Once in a while, he's down, and he sees himself as the boy, <laughs> or the, the rose unseen. <laughs> sure. <laughs> he does have, you know, he has these moments of recognition, these times when people recognize his work or his talent, and he's uplifted by that. But he also encounters racism and problems in his artwork, doesn't get accepted, and he's always got to work yes, at does. something else to be an artist. And he w- he refuses. He would not take a steady job. His steady job in his mind was painting. His parents helped support him. His they whole did. family helped support him they, because they recognize it's hard in Boston, and he's got a you know mm. he's got a young daughter, and yeah, um, it's it's kind of wonderful the way they support his vision of it his is. own possibilities. There, there was nothing in that family on either side that would give any kind of support for the idea of being an artist, of making your living that way. And I think they were very spectacular in their support of him. They sent food up there and baked goods, and they came up to visit him. They spent him money to come down, and his father sent him $50 at one time because he was... And that's a lot of money. It was a great deal of money at that time. Lila was the little girl, and he sometimes babysat with her. And he is a doting father. You can't help but, He was just crazy about that little girl. Yeah, and you can't help but, you know, kind of admire that, that there's... Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he could have been resentful that here's this kid I've got to raise now. But there was no hint of that. He would tell, almost every letter had some little tale about what Lila was doing, peeling an orange or sitting in her little chair building building a house out of kindling wood. And in, in one letter, he said, I have to close now because she keeps sticking pieces of paper in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a granddaughter like that. That's great. And, yeah. Tell us about the high point of his artistic aspirations in Boston. Doesn't he have one? Oh, he makes a copy of Moncassi's Christ Before Pilate, which is a huge a mural, as a matter of fact. And there were newspaper articles that said that Nelson's was better. And they especially reprinted this in the Hartford papers (laughs) because they were very proud of him. And he decides he's going to take this mural, as people did in the time, on the road and have public exhibitions and sell tickets and Mm -hmm. essentially use the mural as a platform for his success. And, And yes, to build his reputation throughout the country. I tried... Every city I could think of that a railroad might have gone through 
including Chicago, uh, at the time. And I didn't find any notices about that. But we do know he wound up in San Francisco, which well, is he, interestingly where Holdridge had well, wound up. Well, you know, that was the first thing I thought. <laughs> he, he followed in his father's footsteps. Yeah. And it does seem like at the end of his life, and this is at the turn of the 20th century, yes, right? Yes, He's in San Francisco, but he is getting commissions. There are a number of artworks that surface that, you know, show he was busy and he was working. And Most of the ones, and I, I would say the best ones that we have seen were done out there. He was in Seattle for a little while, but he wound up in San Francisco. That's where he stayed. But he never came, once he went to California, he never came back. Never he came died home there, again. Right? So, so that's Nelson, the artist who had great expectations, and he never reached the pinnacle of his vision, but he had an artist's life. And, and the, the pitiful thing is that the, now there are people who specialize in collecting black art, and they recognize Holdridge Primus, and they look for his things in there. What do you think? How good was he? I think he was good. I think he was very good. He was not inventive, and I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a specialist either. My husband knew more about art than I did, and I've asked people, and they always say this was a man with talent, and they pick out ways he did lighting or in, in some cases where he's doing a woman, the frills or the lace on her dress will be especially good. Or he's, he's not the greatest and probably never would have been. But if he'd had a patron or if he'd had academic training, if he'd had some kind of an inroad into the, into the world of art, was this color that, so, I can't say that held him back, but it didn't help any. Sure. Before we leave him, there's, there's one more point about him that I was really struck by. It's that he he was nothing if not opinionated. I mean, Nelson had, you know, he, he had a feeling very about strong. just about everything. And he, in fact, was very critical of all kinds of people. He was critical of uh, lower-class blacks and the way they lived, he was critical of free women, and of course the Irish. They certainly got, you know, an earful. <laughs> is this typical of members of this middle-class black aspirant group? I doubt it. I do think that there was a definite class feeling in, in his letters and also in Rebecca's, and to some extent in Addie's. And I think it was partly... The idea that these people who are behaving so roughly and so uncouth, uh, they're damaging our efforts to, they're, they're to gonna... show how um, uplifted we are. So they're actually a break on our efforts to achieve equality. They, you know, they're setting a bad example and they're... they're and yeah, the, the yeah, public they're is fodder, seeing them. fodder for our critics. Is, that makes sense. Now, Rebecca, she's fascinating and, and I'm very admirable figure to me. Yeah. She, in the wake of the Civil War, decides she's going to do her part. She's going to go south and teach these newly freed 
slaves, you know, give them an education, but people who have just been freed. So how does that come about? Where does she go? What what happened was she was already a teacher. There's no um, public record of it, but she had a school, and I taught it. She had a school in Hartford. For young women, for young black women. So what prompted her to leave the school and go Well, what happened was there was a, a society in Hartford of white people who decided to send help, including teachers, south to found schools, and they worked in with the... Freedmen's Bureau, they decided they would send five teachers from Hartford. She was the only black they selected. And in in the course of doing that, they also asked her mother to become a member of their board, which was another little um, item that would have raised people's hopes about things are getting better for blacks. Well, and, you know, that happens in a number of cases where you see in the 1860s some black members of the community are included in these boards of yeah, you know, of the, some in, in the YMCA there was yeah. yeah you know as you point out later that's kind of a short duration effect yeah but this is that but moment the, when yeah. it's working uh, and well this see her her idea was that the way you uplift the race was through education this was her motive in the beginning of becoming a teacher and to have the chance to go south where there were real former slaves, which she would have not been very familiar with, to teach them was like the the real thing that she meant to do. By 1865, Hartford's a pretty bustling city now. It was oh yes, it was it a port not. town when Holdridge moved there. But by 1865, it is a rising, booming industrial city, yeah. right? Get manufacturing, and it's starting to have insurance, and it's a yeah, it becomes a center. It was a very important city for the rest of the century, actually. So down she goes to Baltimore, and then she is sent to this little tiny town on the eastern shore of Maryland, Royal Oak. Tell us what happened when she got there. She she was uh, given a room in the home of a man named Charles Thomas and his wife, and they had no children and she wrote her letters home in that room, which she described as very neat and very clean, and she liked it. Then She was taken back by the community she'd come to with her maybe rose-colored glasses on. What'd she find out? She found out that these people thought she was very strange, and she found them really um, difficult to understand and difficult to deal with. And it's in her letters, and she's very discreet about it, but it's quite clear that she is a little disappointed that they are so, what she looks at as lower class, they are living the best way they know how. They've been unfree most of their lives, and now they are free. And if they feel like wearing red and orange together and wearing (laughs) what she describes as a black basque with a, a sort of an organdy overlay of Purple, say. Uh, the daughter of a dressmaker, right? She's and, very critical she's about just, fashion. <laughs> this, this is difficult. Well, I got the sense that, that there's two things going on here. There is middle class versus lower class, but there's also New England culture versus Southern culture. And she's, she, she has come down to help 
but uh, but she just finds this a very strange environment. She is having a reaction that's very like what the northern white teachers had when they went south. But to her, and I'm sure to most of them, it's the mission that's important. She came to understand them a little better. She never did get really at home there. But interestingly enough, she... It seems that she really does succeed as a teacher in this environment. She certainly wins the respect of both the community and her students. She also is able, with the help of people in Hartford, to raise the money to build a schoolhouse there. Mm-hmm. And the people in Royal Oak name it after her. Oh, yes. They they thought it was wonderful. They, they had never seen anything like Rebecca Primus before, an educated woman black. So she was an anomaly to them. And they would come and visit her. And then, you know, in one letter, she says, there have been 17 people so far this morning. And now here comes another one. I'll never finish this letter. (laughs) (laughs) So she's certainly accepted by them, even if she's having trouble kind of figuring out how they they roll. There was an episode, I think it was the second year she was there, where she was talking to one of the trustees of the schools and said, if it's a nice day on Thanksgiving, I think I'll go out and come visiting. So they were looking for her and she didn't come. And they sent word to Charles Thomas, her landlord, and he said, well, you better get over there. (laughs) Now, Charles Thomas comes, he's a very interesting figure in this story, and your writing skills are shown in the way you position him. He's very (laughs) much a mentor to her. Yeah. Down there. She, you know, when she has a problem, say, getting lumber for the school or a location for the school, he's the fixer, right? Yes, he is. He, he is a, a, a big man down there. I mean, he, he gets around and he knows, he knows all the right white people. And he also uh, has the respect of the black. He's, he owns some land. He has trained horses. He, he's the foreman at a mill. And he's and also got a pretty nice sense of humor, I think, from the way it, Rebecca does. She enjoys his, his humor. He, they, they go to a wedding where there's a, an older man. Well, no, it's a younger man is, is marrying this woman who is not attractive. And she writes that Charles Thomas was the only man to go over and kiss her and said afterwards that he never would have done that if he had seen from a distance how she looked. <laughs> and said he, he told her to tell his mother, her mother, <laughs> that it was the ugliest woman he ever saw in his life. This was all just jokes. Oh, sure. How long did she stay in Maryland? Um, she did that for five years until the Freed- Freedmen's Bureau cut off the money for those schools. So she came home because they actually stopped supporting the school. They, she would come home in the summers, but she went back every year. Most teachers didn't last more than two years, I read. But she she kept going back, and she was so dedicated to what she was doing that she just made herself go back and keep trying. And she did learn to accept them. She that that Thanksgiving day she she did go out then, and she visited I think five different families. You do get the feeling that over time she becomes much more comfortable there yes, than she yeah. had been. But she comes back to Hartford, and it's you know, this is one of the 
big surprises of this story that you would think the trajectory is there's all of these hopes and expectations and the Civil War and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, they're going to be, you know, that's the promised land. The gates are open. The civil rights Right, the civil rights uh, constitutional amendments. But in fact, this really marks the downturn Mm -hmm. for her Mm -hmm. hopes. What happened to Rebecca when she came back? Did she teach in Hartford? She did not. Well, she taught um, Sunday school was what she taught. When she came back, the schools had been integrated, but the teachers were all white. They did not So she couldn't get a job as a teacher in Hartford, even though the people of Hartford had raised money for her to teach in Maryland. She was excluded from teaching when she got back. These color lines, well, it's the birth of Jim Crow. And we think of that in the South, but it's... No, it's, you can see it in the North. It's just not by law. It's gentlemen's agreement. It's by attitude, Yeah. yeah. How do you feel that her life went when she got back? Did she settle into the community pretty comfortably? She did get a surprise. She had gone as a single woman. She came back as a single woman, moved back into the family house, and then somebody shows up. Who is it? Charles Thomas. Charles Thomas, her mentor from down there, the guy with the sense of humor. Yeah, the, the landlord. And what happened to his wife has puzzled scholars ever since. But here he came, and they married. And you can tell in her letters that she thinks he's really a very nice man and likes him very much and does depend on him, not only for help with things that she needs to get done in context to make, but I think he helped her get comfortable with the people, explaining what they were doing or how they were thinking. And did you, were you surprised to find him coming to Hartford, or was that, you know... Oh, in a way. And how, when when this guy showed up. He's obviously coming to see Rebecca, right? How'd her family take to him? That, that's to see there are no letters. So we don't know. But he he is he lives in the house, in the Primus family house. And they are soon married, you know, within a year. And then a sort of sad thing that happens is Charles Thomas has the same kind of culture shock coming north that she had going south. He has real trouble finding work and keeping jobs jobs and he has some interesting starts on things but he doesn't have any skill and the the lids were still in place for what jobs blacks could sure. do anyway and the unfortunately there was an accident he was hit on the head with a, a rock or a stone in a bad it must have hit him right on the temple or some place where it made a difference in his abilities from then on he was, was that you know was that an accident or was somebody targeting that's him? not even clear but in the newspaper write-up it sounds like an accident there was something going on between sure. some other people and this rock got thrown and didn't hit the target it was intended for. And he wasn't quite the same after that. Uh, he, he did work from time to time, but obviously there were periods when he couldn't work. And she went to work with her mother sewing, and um, later in life she lived... He died. Probably the most sad thing in the book is she had a baby, and shortly after they were married, and it was a son. And you know 
that they were both just delighted with yeah. it. That, but the baby died after seven months, I yeah. think, and it was it's just awful. And I hadn't known about that, but a, a woman who was really a genealogist had gotten interested in what I was doing, and she started searching the newspapers. But she found this clipping about Ernest, Ernest Primus Charles Thomas. Oh, that's a sad and, story. Yeah, it was just an awful thing to read. Now, the third set of letters you have is from, and it's, you know, it's one that still has scholars just buzzing. It's Mm -hmm. letters from Addie Brown, who is a kind of a working class aspirant to the middle class, right? And, Mm -hmm. and an intimate, dear friend of Rebecca. And that's, you know, that's a complex relationship. But tell us about them. That's a 19th century phenomenon, and I think uh, between men it was studied, and then more recently among women, among white women, usually at a younger age in school, say in boarding school, girls would form bonds with one another, and sometimes very intimate, and sometimes with sexual overtones and and actions, I guess. When when the scholars have looked at this relationship, they see all of the landmarks of the those earlier the white girls. The white girls who would do this at a younger age here, Addie and Rebecca have this are in their twenties, yeah. They're in their twenties, but it is both emotionally intimate clearly very emotionally intimate, and it has this erotic cast to it yeah, that's a little yeah, ambiguous. But, no, I, yeah. some of it is, frankly, erotic. Uh, you, you concluded they did have a sexual relationship of some kind. Yeah, is it? And because she describes it, Addie describes it. I consider her early letters after, right after Rebecca left home to go, Addie was just devastated. She was destroyed. Her sister wrote a letter, Henrietta wrote a letter to Rebecca saying that Addie had gone out on a date with her gentleman caller and he brought her back after about half an hour because she couldn't stop crying. Wow. She was so. So she was really crushed when Rebecca went. It just left a hole in her life. Yeah. It's sort of gradual in the letter. She starts talking about other things more, but the, the early ones are just very... <laughs> so you feel like this was a, an intimate, close, physical relationship, and then Rebecca went south, and Addie's attitudes changed over time. She ends up marrying. She knew in her mind all along, and this was common, too. I mean, these were not all... They just did not become lifelong connections between the girls or between Addie and Rebecca, because there's one place where she writes, I'm glad you like Mr. Tynes, because if I should marry him, I I would hope to have some pleasure. It's a a funny sentence the way it ends, but the, the point is that she knows perfectly well the future that she looks for has to be in a marriage. In some ways, because she comes from a working class background, you really get this sense of this aspiring to middle class status. She she doesn't have it, but she's always working to attain it, isn't she? She, she sees Rebecca as her idol, but Rebecca's family is like all the saints <laughs> that go with the idol. <laughs> so one of the startling things about Addie is that her working life is a struggle and it's hard. And you, you know, you demonstrate that for a working class black woman in post-Civil War Hartford, it's no cup of tea. Life is tough for her. 
Well, I think that's the way it was because she was a fighter. Like when she was promised two fifty a week and she only got two dollars, she she decided to take a decision stand, <laughs> and she went and talked to the man, not the woman, and she got her fifty cents, which meant a lot more to her than it yeah. did to him. But she wouldn't, you know, she wasn't going to stand for that. She said, "I don't care, colored or white." <laughs> That's right. So she was a she was feisty, and she probably got yeah. some of that from Rebecca and from you know from. I all don't. The, I don't know. I think she brought that with her because yeah. for somebody to just leave your family and go off on your own, as she obviously did, took a lot of gumption. You have to have independence. Yeah. To begin How with. smart that was, you don't know. I. I felt a little bit like she married to escape the drudgery of her work life. Was I reading that into your work, or did no. you? No. Well, any any black woman would do that. I mean, if you have two people trying to earn the living, sure. you got somebody to fall back on, and you've got, you know, at least a hope that if, if you are having a hard time, he will still be working, or the other way around. It's part of that collaborative a, and community thing. Partnership, the, yeah. 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 But it you know, so it was part of the pattern of the Holdridge family, which was her model. Now when she married she moved to Philadelphia and then what happened to her? Within two years she was dead of consumption. So the letters end. So, yeah. You, you, you must wonder how Rebecca felt. There's no nothing about Addie Brown in the census, in uh, city directories, in newspapers. There's we wouldn't even know about her if it weren't for the letters. And look at how colorful and uh, unforgettable she is. You know, one of the things that I loved was her description of uh, the November celebration when the the 29th and 31st Volunteer Colored Infantry Regiments came back to Hartford and the blacks in Hartford kind of browbeat the whites into having a big celebration for them, which they did. Yes. And Addie describes that in a really wonderful way. Yeah, She, she said... For once, we've had the city. But the arc of black fortunes after the Civil War is downward. From Reconstruction onward, things really do start to get bad. From From the end of Reconstruction, it's just a low, flat place for years. You call the last section of your book Expectations Deferred, but in many ways it seemed to me to read like Expectations Thwarted. By 1880, conditions for blacks in Hartford are declining. The numbers of African Americans are growing. All of this is going on while Hartford's becoming one of the wealthiest cities in America. One of the issues in Hartford is the difference between the traditional New England, black, African-American middle class, and this influx of freed Southerners who are coming to the city. You know, like Charles Thomas, it's not exactly a smooth transition, is it? Yeah. So the blacks, the old-time blacks in Hartford are experiencing what Rebecca did when she went south. They just stand aghast at these people. And they really, they, they, you know, they, they... are a little standoffish about them. And it's almost like two communities form within there, the There black are, community. yeah. And the, the newcomers knew that, felt it, saw it. They didn't want to go to those established black churches. They founded their own. And the first one, evidently, was in a, a boxcar. The, the sort of a, a graphic de- 
depiction of oh. where they were at. Sure, these are traveling even in people. The, even yeah. among their own people, in a sense. Well, and there is a really interesting thing that happens in the census records right around this time, uh-huh. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I, I didn't see this noted anywhere else, but I, I sort of picked up on it because I was looking at all those census figures, and people like the Primuses had been black through every census in 1870, or in some cases in 1880, all of a sudden they're mulatto. And the incoming Southern, the freed Southern former slaves who come to Hartford, they are the new blacks, right? They are, yeah. So it's almost like black people in our community who we know. That's right. They're mulatto. And who know how to behave. Yeah. It's It's a recognition of something that's happened. Well, in a, in a very ironic way, it's like a step toward that racial equality. If you, <laughs> if you turn it upside yeah. down, it's the inversion of it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So by the turn of the 20th century, things have gone from, from good in 1860 to not so good yeah, anymore. From, from good and hopeful to poor... And um, dang, there's just nothing but darkness ahead. What happened? One of the strengths of your book, as I said, is the way you do the research. So you show how homeownership declines, how, you know, just how the fortunes of Literacy black Literacy went down. And even the, not, the homeownership, there were 35 black homeowners in Hartford in 1860. That's, that's the high point. It was down to 22 by 1870. 1880. So this decline is and there pretty was, there fast. And the population had risen, but they were the blacks from the South that had yeah. swelled the numbers. Around this time, people begin to die off. And the, yeah. the last surviving member of the family is Rebecca. Rebecca. And she lives a long time, right? Eight, 1932. She was 96 years old. Very impressive, yeah. They, what, what was the legacy for her? You, you wonder wh- what she said to herself, and, and I point out that she did get, because she belonged to an important black family, she did get an obituary in the paper. It didn't mention her school, her going south, or any of that. It, it, as if the whole country wanted to just forget about the Civil War and all of that trouble. I I feel like they turned and gobbled up the idea of Manifest Destiny to sort of erase all the horrors and and trouble. It's just a way of forgetting. Yeah. So while while the South is recovering the lost cause, the North is getting amnesia. If you were looking back on the lives of the Primuses, What does their life stand for in the history of African-Americans in Connecticut, in America? What what does it mean to you? I think what what you have left of their lives is the black middle class. It's as if, in some people's minds, it was only invented like the day before yesterday. But uh, those people have been here. I've met some of them when I first came here. And they, they live their lives just the way the, the Primuses did. They own their homes if they can. They go to work. They dress properly. They treat one another well. They educate their children. They care about their families. And they, 
sort of tune out on on all of the ugliness that they have to contend with. So that idea of racial uplift is still in some ways operating. I don't know that there's the it, the the laws have changed, you know, and the, they can vote now. Holdridge Primus was voting by 1870. I, it was neat to see his name yeah. on the roll. And and they are guaranteed certain rights, and they are recognized finally as citizens. There's still this awful tra- prejudice that even President Obama and various professors of, that who are black have suffered and, and have made known Race remains the great American problem, doesn't it? It's not been defeated by any means. But I will tell you, for people who want to understand the history of African Americans in Connecticut, your book is a, an important contribution. <laughs> You've done a wonderful job. And, you know, for anyone out there who may be in retirement or thinking of retirement, and you've got some goal that you think is too ambitious or too hard, you remember this name, Barbara <laughs> Beeching. Because how old were you when this book was published? <laughs> I was um, 88, I guess. 88. She published a <laughs> remarkable history at the tender age of 88. Go thou and do likewise. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Grading the Nutmeg, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com. And now available on Spotify. And for more great Connecticut stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history at ctexplored.org. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at bowman.legal. And Connecticut Humanities. Visit cthumanities.org.